from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans, and yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. On this episode of Newt's World, my guest today is Cash Patel. He was an influential voice in the Trump administration, advising President Trump on national security issues. He served as the former chief of staff to acting Secretary of Defense Chris Miller and was responsible for leading the secretary's mission at the department, including overseeing his executive staff and providing counsel to the secretary on all matters concerning the department's operations. Previously, he served as the deputy assistant to the president and senior director for counterterrorism at the National Security Council. In that capacity, he oversaw the execution of several of President Donald J. Trump's top priorities, including eliminating ISIS and al-Qaeda leadership, such as al-Baghdadi and Qasim al-Rimi, and the safe return of numerous American hostages. Mr. Patel also served as principal deputy to the acting director of national intelligence, where he oversaw the operations of all 17 intelligence community agencies and provided the president's daily brief. I want to have him on today to discuss the national security system and how he believes it needs to be reformed. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Cash Patel. Thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Mr. Speaker, it's an honor to be with you. I've been an admirer of your career for a long time and a big fan of the fight you have undertook for decades to help lead our country in the right direction. So humbled and honored to be on your program. So before we dive into national security, I can't help but ask you about your new role as President Trump's new social media platform, Truth Social. How did all that come about? 
Well, it's kind of the best laid plans, Mr. Speaker. I'm not a tech guy. I was never on social media during my time in 16 years in government, really. And so when President Trump decided to launch Truth Social, and then he brought over my former boss, Devin Nunes, to be the CEO of TMTG, the umbrella company, it's public now that they offered me a position on the board because I think they saw that we share the same ideals when it comes to free speech and a platform for conversation in America about not just politics, but everything that's cancel culture free as much as I hate that terminology, you know, that people aren't going to come in from the far left, the far light or wherever you and say, we disagree with what you're saying or the candidates you're supporting, and we're going to shut you down and delete you. So that's how I got involved. And that was sort of the starting point. And you know, Truth Social has really roared to life over the last, I'd say, 45 days. Millions and millions of now users have more engagement than any other social media platform. And I'm on there, surprisingly. I'm at Cash, K-A-S-H. I'm surprisingly on there and engaging people to talk about national security, defense, law enforcement, and I guess all things John Durham. <laughs> and how do you see the rise of this? I know initially it had some teething problems, but I think all of these very complicated systems initially have to sort through a little bit like off-Broadway practice for a play. I think they still have to continue to evolve, don't they, to involve more platforms? Oh, absolutely. You're right. And, you know, I remind folks out there that Twitter took three years and three separate CEOs before they got to more than half capacity. And, you know, I think Truth Social is in its basically fourth or fifth month actually being an online platform. There's more iterations to come. We're going to onboard Android users in the next month. We're also going to utilize the desktop feature so that folks can join in from their computers at home and their laptops. And once those features are all fully mobilized, that will add millions and millions more. And I think we anticipate about 10 to 20 million users by the end of the summer. And to put that in perspective, Twitter has 25 million human beings that are users on Twitter. They have 100 million bots. And what we're shooting for on Truth Social is the elimination of all bots and just to have human beings actually engage the platform. And the engagements are through the roof. There's something like 20 times that of anyone on Twitter right now. That's amazing. And of course, with President Trump as a draw, you're going to have a very enthusiastic market. Absolutely. And President Trump just joined formally Truth Social and started truthing less than one week ago. In fact, I was with him in Mar-a-Lago this past weekend where he started issuing his first ever truth. I think he's up to over 3 million followers himself. And as you said, Mr. Speaker, you know, once he gets going, there's going to be a lot of focus on his platform because that's how he's going to communicate to the world. The one thing that I thought made it more complicated was Elon Musk's decision to buy Twitter. How do you think that interacts with Truth Social? You know, what I tell people is I think it's the best advertising we could never have bought. Because while we were always critical of Twitter and Facebook for their censorship and their deplatforming of users, what Elon Musk did was he came in and he gave a valuation to an entity that had no valuation before. You know, Twitter's not like the Googles and Facebooks of the world where they aggregate and sell data and advertising and make money in that fashion. They don't have a value, but he came in and gave them a $48 billion value. And what I told the president was, I said, this is pretty brilliant when I saw him this past weekend. If we're successful in getting 20 million people on your platform, real human beings on your platform, then Truth Social, by the end of the summer, could be a 15 to $20 billion company, according to Mr. Musk's evaluation. So it's all positive from my perspective. Somehow, given Trump's track record of whether it was real estate or golf courses or television shows, I wouldn't be shocked to have him come out of all this as a big winner. 
And of course, one of the people he turned to was your former boss, Devin Nunes, who I've talked with many times and have great admiration for. What was Nunes like to work for? So then Chairman Nunes hired me to run the Russiagate investigation. So I spent some time with him as the chief investigator for the Russiagate hoax or scandal, whatever you want to call it. We were the guys that uncovered the truth that Hillary paid for it, put out the Nunes memo in our report. But the thing about Devin was he had a saying. He said, show up early, stay late and work. And that was sort of the ethos of the committee staff. We showed up early, we stayed late and we did the work and we knew it was going to be hard. We didn't know it was going to be that hard. We didn't know the media was going to come after us in the way that they did. But I think Devin's inner core is he's always been a free speech guy, free communications guy, and he pushed that to the limit. And the Russiagate investigation showed the corruption in the media, and he was really ticked off by that. And for a 19-year congressman who was about to take the gavel at the House Ways and Means Committee, for him to leave, it must have been something that caused him some serious concern. And he did because he wanted to transform how the media operates and how we communicate as America, because he thinks it's gone so far south in the last five, six years that he felt leaving Congress, this was his new mission. And then I ended up working for him and President Trump all over again. I'm very proud of what Devin did. The great irony was Nunes was telling the truth consistently while Adam Schiff was lying consistently. And I've suggested strongly to Kevin McCarthy that if the Republicans do take control that they create a unique special committee for Schiff that has no staff, no legislative jurisdiction, no work to do, and just put him there and nowhere else under the rule that Pelosi set up that the speaker gets to pick and choose even in the opposition party. But it must have been sort of maddening to know what the truth was and watch these people and their allies in the news media just routinely lie to the country. It was more than maddening. And Mr. Speaker, you know better than anyone else in your career of service to this country. Your job is to the American people. It's not to any sort of conviction that you have at the end of the day if it violates the truth. And what Devin did was he said, look, you have the intel background. You're a former federal prosecutor and public defender. I need you to come in and run this investigation. I said, I'll do it on one condition. Whatever we find, we put out to the American people. We didn't know what we were going to find. And he agreed to do that right away. And I said, then we can go But neither of us saw the headwind, I guess you can call it, of what the mainstream media and Adam Schiff were going to do in that they would intentionally, elected members of Congress and deep state politicians would go to the cameras and lie and leak classified information to support politically friendly narratives. It was just more than shocking. And the fact that there hasn't been enough accountability on that is, I think, something that frustrates most of Americans more than anything else. I think we're finally getting there with John Durham, but we laid the foundation in the Russiagate investigation, but the torrent that we faced was not anything we were prepared for. You know, your own career of searching for the truth, it's interesting that you were a public defender in Florida for eight years. I mean, what led you to decide that's normally not a very high-paying job, and I'm sure many of your relatives looked like you were nuts. They all thought I was crazy. You're going to grad school to go work at a white shoe law firm and make lots of money. And I took a trial class my last year of law school, and I said, this is kind of fun. And then I thought, what would be even sillier? Let me find the job in America that pays the least when you have 180000 in debt after graduating law school. And I thought, let me go be a public defender. But honestly, it was a blessing in disguise. The skills I learned trying cases in state and federal court have served me in my entire career, even later when I became a terrorism prosecutor. And then throughout my career in the intel community, the Department of Defense, and obviously running Devin's Russiagate investigation. But I'm curious. Your clients included some pretty nasty people. The worst of the worst, Mr. Speaker. 
you know, it was a fascinating learning curve for me to have to represent murderers, people who had committed sexual crimes, cartel officials, human smugglers. But in the realm of due process, I told my boss down there, I said, if you're going to be a public defender, then give me the worst of the worst, because if you can't give those guys due process, then our system fails. But the hint that my Democratic friends gave me in the public defender arena was kind of foretelling, but I didn't see it at the time. They would come in and say, well, we don't want to represent X or Y. And I was like, I thought you guys are the holders of due process. And you're now coming in being selective about who gets the applications afforded in the Constitution. So I thought it was ironic then, but I guess they showed their true colors. I just didn't see it for a while. I'm curious, did it change your understanding of the criminal class? Yeah, it really did. I mean, look, the reality is people always ask, did you ever defend truly innocent people when you're a public defender? And, you know, over 99%, no, of course not. They were charged with something. The difference was the level of the charging And in terms of sentencing, I think that's where really the rubber meets the road, because that's the fight you have to undertake to say, should this person with this background receive this kind of sentence? But the one thing I did discover in the biggest cartel case I ever defended was the federal prosecutor in that case hid exculpatory information from the court and me in a two-year case. And at the end of it, when I found it, the judge was forced to throw the entire case out against 16 defendants who had imported more cocaine through South Florida up until that time than any other in history. And that was another one of those things where I was like, how can federal prosecutors and the FBI fail us like that intentionally? And, you know, lo and behold, I would come to find out that that would serve me well during the Russiagate investigation because that's what happened there. It was disappointing for a career public servant like me to see that kind of activity. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. 
If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. But then you switched, so you go from public defender to being the trial attorney for the U.S. Department of Justice National Security Division, which in terms of learning must have been an amazing learning curve. But now you're on the other side trying to lock up guys who are engaged in terrorism. Yeah, I have to say that was one of the greatest jobs ever. I was prosecuting terrorists all over the country and overseas and working with our intel community and our military to get these guys And we were using the FISA process to get surveillance of these guys overseas. And it was really technical stuff, changing information from the battlefield into usable evidence that you can use in an Article III court. And all information and skills I would later use when we found out about the FISA abuse process. So I guess God was sort of preparing me for that ultimate investigation. But in terms of a learning experience, wow, my time at the Justice Department was just fascinating. Then you had a brief period where you're actually on the House Intelligence Committee, again, getting a whole new education. I think the trade-off I made with Devin was, since I was a counterterrorism guy, sort of by trade by that point, I said, let me run your counterterrorism platforms for the Intel programs. And in exchange, I'll run the Russiagate investigation. And it was fantastic. I went to 36 sites around the world for our intelligence programs and military installations and just learned how the community and the DOD operate to support American national security. And then, of course, the budgeting, as you are all too familiar with and an expert at, it was a great learning curve for me. Well, by the time I met you, you were actually back in the National Security Council environment, and you're busy helping track down some of the worst enemies of America and helping design operations that worked. I mean, we were, in fact, very successful in breaking up ISIS and in tracking down al-Baghdadi and then later on, Soleimani. So in very targeted operations with minimum risk to Americans, the Trump administration was actually pretty amazingly effective in making it dangerous to be our enemy. And you're right at the heart of that. What did you learn about the application of American power to defeating terrorists? Well, two things. I learned that the power of the National Security Council is where all the interagency process intersects to effectuate a president's agenda. And President Trump came to me and said, basically, look, as counterterrorism head, you need to kill the emirs of ISIS, wipe out al-Qaeda senior leadership, protect our border, defeat the narco-traffickers, and bring home American hostages. Pretty apolitical stuff. What I was shocked to find as my time at the National Security Council was how many people within government, including career official and political appointments made by Trump, 
who wanted to impede missions like the Baghdadi raid or the Soleimani strike or the retrieval of American hostages. You know, as much as I learned about the interagency and how to churn that machine to drive a president's agenda, what I learned even more so was how to take on these people that are within that system, fighting it just because they had a leader in President Trump who they politically disagreed with. And it was just shocking to see that continuation of the leak of classified information that I experienced at House Intel carry over into the executive branch when we're guiding the president's national security mission. So for me, that was another tragic experience because we were all rowing in the same direction. They just didn't want Trump to have the credit. Well, when you were principal deputy to the acting director of national intelligence, you oversaw the operations of all 17 intelligence agencies. Do we really need 17 intelligence agencies? I'm with you, Mr. Speaker. You know, when Rick Grinnell and I were over there, we cut the workforce down by, I think, something like 10% in just the short time that we were there. And we don't need them. We don't need all of those slots. We don't need all of those billets. But what happens is Congress legislates these billets, and it sounds good to the American public that we're increasing X and Y here in agency and department Z and A over there. But we don't need them. We need our focused subject matter folks guided to target the presidential priorities when it comes to intelligence collection. And you don't need 17 agencies to do it. You certainly don't need the millions and millions of people assigned to it to do it. You need to trim that substantially, in my opinion. This may be an unfair public view that may not be accurate in private, but I was surprised that they seemed to be wrong about the capacity of the Taliban. And they seemed to be wrong about whether or not Putin would go into Ukraine. And then they were clearly wrong about whether or not the Ukrainians could resist. I mean, doesn't it worry you that we have this many people working this hard to not get it right? What I can say to you, Mr. Speaker, is that it does worry me. But I think if you were able to distill it down to the subject matter folks who actually studied whether or not Putin would go into the Ukraine, who actually studied whether or not the Taliban would rise again, these folks would come to you and probably have gotten it right. Because I remember looking at intelligence in those channels and seeing it. But what happens was, is it's the politicization of the intelligence apparatus by the folks on the top to support whatever narrative, for instance, in this case, Joe Biden, that they want. So they remove the focus on fights like that and place it on things like climate change and others. And then once information actually gets to the top, it's filtered so that this administration's agenda is put before the national security interest of our country. And that's what I call the ultimate politicization of the national security apparatus. And it's unfortunate to experience and see. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. You know, I've talked to four different people about how Trump had approached Afghanistan towards the end. And they all give the same basic story. So you're the fifth one. And you actually, you did a pretty cool article in the New York Post entitled, I ran Trump's Afghan withdrawal. Biden's attempt to blame us is just sad. When you were in charge of executing President Trump's strategy, how did you see that process of occurring in Afghanistan? And why did you think it would have been dramatically different had Trump been reelected? President Trump said, we have to leave, but leave the right way. He ran on that campaign about leaving and we couldn't just up and leave. And he had entrusted me to do it. And having the background and having worked in Afghanistan on the ground, I kind of knew the folks in the terrain. And he said, look, we can't just jump out of Afghanistan. We have to keep Bagram. We have to keep our drone predator programs. We have to keep some small special forces group on the ground so that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban know we mean business. And we have to make sure that our diplomatic channels are working. Those are just some of the things that he wanted done before a full-out withdrawal. And it was working because I think the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and ISIS all looked at President Trump and said, if we do something wrong, he is going to annihilate us. And that was basically his message to them. And that's the difference. We took that blueprint, though. And this is one of the things that frustrates me most. When the Biden administration was transitioning in and we did the transition at the Department of Defense, we said, here's what's working. Here's an intelligence-based product that's working in terms of how to get out of Afghanistan. And the Biden administration, from the Secretary of Defense on down, refused to even call us back. And that was our signal that we knew that they were going to completely politicize the withdrawal and turn it into a cataclysmic evacuation that led to the deaths of 13 U.S. soldiers and hundreds of Afghans, including drone striking children, because they wanted to put politics before the facts and the intelligence. And that was the difference. So do you think if the Trump team had been reelected that they could have, in fact, found some balance in Afghanistan that would have been accepting of the reality of the Taliban, but not allowing them to totally dominate the country? I do. And I think we had that set up in pieces. They hadn't all come together yet by the time we left the administration. But the power of President Trump was 
people were willing to listen to him, negotiate with him. And also he commanded a level of respect from our enemies, Al-Qaeda and ISIS being one of them. And what I always tell people is, you know, they were like, Cash, how can you let the Taliban govern Afghanistan? And my response to them is, who do you want to govern Afghanistan? It's their country. The Afghan people and the Taliban have to get together and form some form of unified government to govern there. We can't do it for them. You know, the Brits tried, the Russians tried, and we tried our 20-year run there. And President Trump saw that we couldn't stay there forever. But he did see a way forward by combining the power of our national security apparatus with the command that he had as commander-in-chief and use that fear against our enemies. And it was working. I truly believe we could have left something in place that would have worked. We probably need another year or two. And do you think they would have allowed us to stay in Bagram? Yes, because the simple fact is what most civilians don't understand is Bagram Airfield has a strategic advantage point that we paid for, but we also put our allies there along with the Afghan National Security Forces and allowed our superior technology, rotary wing and fixed wing assets to stage out of there. So they could not replace that and an Afghan government would need that apparatus to secure the rest of their country. And that's why I think they would have kept it. Plus, not to mention the detention center we had set up there that they were operating. Now that we are where we are, what do you think is the evolution of Afghanistan over the next five or six years? I hate to say it, Mr. Speaker, but I think U.S. conventional forces will be back on the ground in Afghanistan in less than 18 months. Al-Qaeda is not going away. The Taliban has discarded every asset that we had gained in terms of leverage for the Afghan population. They've gone in and brutalized women all over again and started setting up their operations in conjunction with Al-Qaeda, which is the biggest problem we have. And they've allowed Al-Qaeda senior leadership that was led out of Guantanamo during the Obama administration to now go ahead and take over Taliban senior leadership positions. So these forces combined with the lack of ground game that the Afghan National Security Forces now have because we're not there and our allies are gone only leads to an Afghanistan that will implode, I think, in my opinion. I hope to God I'm wrong, but I see in some manner or force terrorism rising drastically in the next 12 to 18 months. And the epicenter of that, if it's not Iran, it's Afghanistan. So. From your perspective, having looked at national security for years, what do you think are the largest threats to the United States? Iran, to me, has always been the number one threat to the United States and our national security. And, you know, you always hear that phraseology, they're the number one state sponsor of terrorism. They are that for a reason. Most people don't look behind why they are so. They have the IRGC, the Quds Force, their special forces operation that basically their mission exists globally to take on and defeat American interests and American allies, be it in the Arabian Gulf, be it in the Middle East and Iraq and elsewhere. And they are now allying themselves with China and Russia against America. And they are going to continue to do that because in their eyes, you know, they're led by the Ayatollah. There's no greater evil in the world than America. And we have taken our eye off of that mission set and their capabilities are growing faster than ever. You know, right behind them, though, is Russia and China. You know, one, two, two, one, however you want to set the deck on that. But Chinese, what they're doing to us in space and underwater is a tragedy. It's a failure of national security. And the Russians are filling the space in Afghanistan that we left by going in and deploying forces and securing the $80 billion of equipment that we left there, which they are going to steal. 
And so those are just some of the reasons why I think those folks are the biggest threats to American national security interests. My greater concern is that there is no plan in the Biden administration to counter those threats whatsoever. As you look at it, given what's going on in Ukraine, how much would you be concerned about stumbling into a nuclear engagement with Putin? It's always a concern. Maybe I'm in the minority on this one. I don't think he's going to go to the nuclear option because the one thing he knows about American response on a nuclear level is it is better than anyone else's in the world. And it doesn't matter necessarily who's in the White House, because once you launch one nuclear weapon, it's game over. And while they have some superiority over China on the nuclear front, I think even Putin knows that he's gained far more in this war that he's led into Ukraine, you know, from a propaganda standpoint than he ever thought he would. And so I think he sees this as a win and to push it to the nuclear front would cause a total annihilation of, if not at least him, a significant part of Russia. So I don't think we're heading there and pray that we don't head there. So I'm curious, when you had an overview of the Pentagon, as well as an overview of the national security system, how badly do you think we need to overhaul the bureaucracies of the national defense system? It's probably one of my largest priorities to whoever's coming into the next administration. The Department of Defense is 3 million employees. It's the largest organization on planet Earth with the biggest budget of $750 billion. The bureaucracy at the Department of Defense is like nothing I've ever seen in my life. What you have to do is start with R&D, research and development, which is the heart of the Department of Defense. The problem is we have sort of created this self-licking ice cream cone where we fund the Department of Defense to no end. And the defense industrial complex comes in and takes 30 to 60% of that funding. And then folks from the defense industrial complex drop in to be senior level officials in an administration and then receive their golden parachute on the way out to drop back in to the defense industrial complex. And there's a smarter way to do it. There's ways to save money. We don't need to be spending multiples of billions of dollars on projects that have failed. And if the American people knew how many projects fail because of poor leadership and execution and bureaucracy, we could probably fund the GDP of most nations on the world by just one of these project failures. And I think R&D is where to start, but I think you replicate it everywhere. And the Department of Defense has a lot of redundancies. And it's not an attack on our men and women in uniform. That's the last thing that it is. It's an attack on the bureaucracy because people have created it to perpetuate itself to the contravention of American national security and the cost of the American taxpayer. So I have to ask you one other thing, which may be the biggest surprise to me when we get ready to do this conversation with you. I understand you play ice hockey. (laughs) I do. It's my favorite thing in the world. Where did that come from? Well, it's a little bit of a funny story. My father emigrated to Canada from Uganda, he fled Idi Amin's dictatorship. And my dad was a pretty prolific field hockey player. And he came to Canada for a couple of years and said, well, I don't think there's any field hockey here. There's this thing called ice hockey. And he took to it. And then shortly thereafter, he and my mother got married and had me. And I was skating since before I could walk. And I've been playing ice hockey and coaching ever since. And I'll tell you this, Mr. Speaker, my Sunday night hockey games, it's the one thing that got me through the Russiagate investigation and the ups and downs of the Trump administration, because it was my one out with just stepping away from it all to enjoy something I love. I don't know any other team sport except maybe Australian football that allows you to ventilate your aggression with the enthusiasm of hockey. That might be one of the reasons I love it. 
I don't know if you've ever shared notes with Congressman Emmer, who has been a hockey coach and played hockey. And I think all of his sons play hockey, although he says his daughter is actually a better hockey player than they are. So you still play? I still play. I still coach youth hockey in the area, and it's great. And my foundation is actually now sponsoring one of my hockey teams. So it's all going great, and we're going to keep pushing forward. That's great. Well, listen, thank you for serving the country. And I have a hunch that you're going to do very, very well with Truth Social and the work you're doing right now. And I think you'll be invaluable for the next administration in helping rethink our entire national security bureaucracy. So I want to thank you for joining me. And I want you to know that I'm really proud to have you as a friend, and I'm really delighted at the depth of your patriotism and your commitment to America. And I hope in the future we can get together both to talk about Truth Social and to see how your thinking evolves on the whole question of national security. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Speaker, for those kind words. As I said at the beginning, extremely humbling and an honor to be on your show. And I appreciate the friendship tremendously. And I can't wait to see where this goes. And I'll invite myself back anytime you want. (laughs) Thank you to my guest, Cash Patel. You can learn more about rethinking the national security system on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xu mo.com or download from the app and google play stores today all you can stream with zumo play